Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to DS30, where we talk about a topic in data science in uh, about 30 minutes. Uh, I am co-host number one, Nicholas Cifuentes Goodbody, and I'm joined by co-host number two, Ana Ochevar. Hey, Ana, how are you? I'm really good. I'm getting used to this being at home, working from home. Yeah, home life. Yeah, yeah home life, exactly. <laughs> uh, doing well, doing well. Um, and in particular, um, I think today is a good day. We um, are going to be talking to Ashley Mason, who is a data science at Data Reply. And as you'll see, we had a wonderful conversation with him. So that made my day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting to hear uh, Ashley's story. He was a professional poker player for years, bopping in and out of Las Vegas, hanging out with David Moneymaker and all that stuff, you know. Uh, and then now he's working at a data. Uh, he's a, as a consultant, a data science consultant. He's doing all sorts of cool projects. So it was very interesting to hear the sort of diversity of data he works with, and um, the sort of all the sort of implementation details we're doing. Absolutely. So, yeah, Not incredible. to mention that he's also a football expert. I mean, he's yeah, just yeah. throwing it out of his sleeves, as we would say. <laughs> exactly, exactly. He's just pulling out of his sleeves. Not, not that he ever did that as a poker player, but he's definitely doing it as a consultant. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, without further ado, let's go to our interview with uh, Ashley Mason. Ash, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. Oh, no, believe us, the pleasure is all ours. What time is it in the UK where you are? Is it late? Uh, yeah, it's actually 5 p.m. on a Thursday, and we have a four-day weekend for Easter. So um, uh, I'm sitting here with a small glass of white wine, uh, enjoying the sun, would you believe, in London? I wish I was in the UK. Uh, yeah, <laughs> sipping white wine, like lounging in the sun. This is the way to live, my friends. Four-day weekends. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. Yeah, very nice. Very, very good. Well, congratulations on that. Um, besides the fact that you enjoy uh, a little white wine in the sunshine, maybe you could just kind of introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, what is it that you do and how did you come to do it? Sure. So um, I work as a data scientist in a consultancy, a uh, technology consultancy, uh, that have got about 150 different companies across Europe and the wider world. Um, and the particular sort of flavor of that company that I work for, because it's split down into subsidiary companies, is called Data Reply. And it's a big data and analytics consultancy company. Uh, and my role there is a data scientist, um, which means that we're somewhat beholden to the client's uh, needs. So I am fortunate enough to get uh, a vast um, amount of uh, experience in different areas, uh, different projects. One day I'll be doing um, big data on Spark, and then the next day I'll be doing something where I'm scraping Instagram data, and then the next day I will be uh, using satellite imagery, for example, to um, to <laughs> do many different things. <laughs> That's awesome. You make me jealous. Uh, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about how you even got into data science? What's your background, and how did you sort of meander into uh, data science. I, I certainly can. Uh, how long have we got? <laughs> as long as you need, my friends. As long as it's, you need. Um, so it's a fairly non-standard path, I would say. Um, so I'm 30 now. And when I was 18, I left school for uni. And I went to do mathematics. And after a year of doing that, I'd found poker. 
and I started playing poker for a living and dropped out of university. Um, <laughs> and then I did that for a grand sum of about 10 years um, before uh, I decided I was going to retrain and do something a little bit more sensible with my time. Uh, you know, family on the horizon, time to settle down, do something uh, uh, a bit more sensible. So uh, I was thinking about what I could do. And I read this article uh, in The Guardian in the UK about um, someone creating an AI bot, which could beat the best players in the world at poker. Um, so I was just like, how is this possible? It's such a complex game. Like, I can't believe it. And I was reading about it. And then I read about this thing called machine learning, which sounded incredible and sexy. And why wouldn't you want to do that? And I had a friend who uh, had done a data science master's course. And so I asked him if he thought it would be a good thing to do. And he said, with a mathematics background, it's, it's really good uh, sort of stepping stone into data science. And I think you'd really enjoy it. So now, can, can I, just I enrolled. Yeah. Can I just jump in and ask one question? When you say uh, master's course, what does that mean for people who haven't done education in the, in the UK? Is that like a graduate degree? Sure. Um, so yeah, it's... Uh, so the system in the UK is you do an undergrad, which is like a three-year degree, mm -hmm. uh, your undergraduate degree, and then you'll do a master's course, which is one or two years. And then you, uh, after that, you can do a PhD. So it's broken down into those three stages. Okay. I think that over in the US, you've got grad school and you sort of do the master's and the PhD rolled into one longer course. Yeah, that's um, often the case. Yeah. Is yeah. that what you did, Anna? You, did you do a PhD what I did. in the yeah, I actually did it in Slovenia, which is where I'm from, but I also did that all in okay. one. <laughs> yeah, see that I prefer the UK system because you can you can do the undergrad and the masters and then realize, whoa, PhD, that's not for me. See ya. Sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I interrupted. So you were doing your master's course in data science. Yeah, that was it. So so my friend recommended that I that I, um, that I give it a go. So I enrolled, did the data science course, and then started applying for jobs. And um, I got this job at this consultancy company. Um, and so started there. And that's, that's how I got into it, really. I'm sort of curious, before we get into what you do in your day-to-day -day job, tell us a little bit about, uh, just like give us a little bit about Poker. I feel like poker is very much the kind of game that a data scientist would love. You know, it's like about probabilities and all sorts of things. And I'm just sort of curious to kind of, because I feel like there is a, there's a, there's a clean trajectory from math undergraduate poker data science. So I would just love to hear you talk a little bit more about your kind of learning and everything you did while playing poker. I thought part of that question would be also how much money you made me doing poker. So, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Because uh, you lived, bit, did you live in Las Vegas? A bit more Vegas? than I lost. <laughs> a bit, that's you know. Then you then yeah, you're in the you're in the black man. <laughs> uh, I didn't live in Las Vegas for a, uh, an extended period, but I used to go over there for seven weeks every summer for the World Series of Poker, uh, and the, it was like it was amazing. It was it's like uh, a school trip where you and all your buddies from UK poker scene would go over and rent some houses and just play poker and then party and things like that, go for nice meals for, for seven weeks. But if you've been to Vegas yourselves, which I'm sure you have, um, it's not designed to spend seven weeks in. <laughs> After oh, yeah? about two weeks, you just want to you want to get out of there. Really? Anna, have you ever been to Las Vegas? I actually was once. Um, I did not like it, no. I've never been. 
I have no desire to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but as a poker lover, that makes sense. That's exactly. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah man, you're, you're going to the, you know, the place, to, you're going to Graceland, you know, yeah. you're going to Memphis. The, my story is fairly unique, but uh, of, of the trajectory that you spoke of, Nick, but um, people dropping out of STEM subjects to do professional poker uh, is not that unique. I would say that in the last decade, I, well, I didn't hazard a guess as to how many people dropped out of STEM subjects and how many scientists and mathematicians and things like that the world lost to poker during this like poker, poker craze. Mm-hmm. Um, which started in about 2001 or something like that. Um, yeah, it, 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 a lot of people that I met along the way doing that were all, you know, these young kids wearing hoodies, sitting at the table and, uh, you know, sharing ideas online and all this sort of thing. Like um, mm-hmm. just just in, in the same way that you have communities in data science, like uh, GitHub or Stack Exchange or things like that, um, where you you share information and, uh, and everyone gets better together. It was exactly the same with poker. So, so yeah, kind of it, it in a quite way, a natural. It, but it situation. sounds like you did the opposite in some sense where the poker lost poker world lost you to data science. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it was a loss for the poker world by the end. They were making quite a lot from me. <laughs> there you go. So how does being in the poker world and all of that compare to uh, now when you are a consultant or I should say kind of a consultant data scientist yeah so yeah they're quite different so (laughs) first of all you have to get up uh before midday (laughs) no um it it was strange because when i was playing poker um the the time that you would have to wake up to play the particular tournaments that i played would be about two in the afternoon and then you'd play through the night so through the afternoon and then into the evening because it was all based around uh your time zone rather than here in the uk um so the the initial switch from you know student life uh, of doing the masters well the, the the transition from playing poker where you're basically nocturnal to being a student where you're doing the masters course and you're pretty relaxed about the times that you're waking up and things like that to the uh, the routine of getting up going into the office and having set office hours and having to work for someone else not just your boss but then also being beholden to clients and things like that was a bit of a, uh, a bit of a change that I had to get used to, but I absolutely love it now. I didn't think that the me of three or four years ago would be saying that. I thought I'd be saying, I love the stuff I do, and that side of it, I don't like so much. I'd rather pick and choose my own hours, but now I really, really do love it. Um, having the structure and everything in place, um, it's just something that I never realized that I was missing, but I, I've been craving it, yeah. Awesome. There you go. Some people go into the military, others go into <laughs> consultancy. <laughs> but, you yeah. know, it's, it's, it's funny that you say this because I feel like uh, everyone I meet in data science comes from totally different backgrounds. Like I was studying, you know, uh, Latin American novels. Anna was building uh, touchscreens for dolphins. You know, <laughs> Ashley was like facing down, you know, playing Molly's game, you know, just, you know, kicking butt in poker. And, and here we are now doing data science. I know it's amazing, um, it, and it really brings you to so 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 when you and I met Nick um, when we were doing the data data incubator course ourselves, um, the the eight of us in that room all had sort of vastly different backgrounds, and yours in particular. I remember thinking, wow, this guy's done like 
Latin American literature PhD. Like, how does that possibly translate to data science? But it's just, it's amazing that in that field, you can meet so many people from so many different backgrounds that you wouldn't ordinarily meet. Yeah, uh, yeah. You're right. So, uh, so I've met consultants and they kind of do a little bit of everything. Um, what does it mean to be specifically a, a data science consultant? What does that look like? Um, so typically we have project work. So we'll have uh, a client will come to us and say, okay, we've got this problem. Um, we need some uh, data science expertise or some analytics expertise or, or what have you uh, to try and solve it. Here's what we thought. What do you think? And then we'll sort of work together and have a back and forth uh, and we'll come up with a plan. And normally that plan resolve, revolves around, okay, by a certain date, we will deliver this particular product or uh, proof of concept or pilot or what have you. And then on the successful completion of that, we'll roll that out into um, uh, uh, the production environment. So, um, being a, a data science consultant, it's very hands-on. You're doing a lot of uh, developing machine learning algorithms or uh, putting together pipelines using cloud platforms or, or what have you. Um, and so, so there's a, a big hands-on component to it. But then there's also a big uh, client-facing component as well where you've got to discuss things with clients and make sure that you're on the right page and there might not necessarily be people that uh, have the same data science knowledge as you. So you have to translate it sort of into to layman's terms and they've got to translate their business ideas into layman's terms so that I can understand them. So uh, I don't know, it, it's, it's sort of a sweet spot for me personally uh, because I quite like communicating to people. I quite like talking and things like that and, and meeting people. So I get to have my, my, technical fix if you want to call it that and my my uh human fix at the same time awesome so i would be very interested to uh, hear about all the sorts of projects that you work on during uh your job but maybe before we get into that it feels like we cannot um not mention the current situation we're in and the whole world basically being in uh you are in the uk and london right now so i guess the main topic there would be um, how the NHS is dealing with the crisis and everything that's going on. Um, I guess one thing that's a very positive thing that maybe we should talk about is uh, how all over the world we've been applauding medical workers and everybody on the front lines while we are here sitting in our homes chatting about data science. So did you want to um, tell us a little bit about how that works in the UK? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing it up. Um, so First of all, uh, for those people that don't know, the NHS is the National Health Service in the UK. And there was, I think it was a government-led initiative to um, everyone in the country who was, you know, housebound and on lockdown. Let's all, the, the least we can do is every Thursday at eight o'clock, we're going to go to our front doors and we're going to give a big round of applause for the NHS. And um, when I heard about this, I thought, ah, oh, that's that's kind of a nice gesture, but you know, what, what does a round of applause really do? But then when I actually experienced it and I was standing there clapping and cheering and everyone in the, in the street uh, at their own front doors, you know, keeping a safe distance, but everyone had come outside that were banging pans and clapping and cheering. And it was so heartwarming. There was a real community feeling. Um, so that was really, really, 
pleasing. And you see videos and things online of NHS staff who are getting uh, ovations from their neighbours and stuff like that. And it, it's you know it, it does really make a difference to those staff and keeps them going. And those are the ones that are, you know making a difference to us and keeping us going. So it was nice to be able to reciprocate something there. That's so amazing. I don't, you know, I'm in Los Angeles. I don't know if we're really doing anything like that in Los Angeles. It's hard to get people from Los Angeles to like get out of their houses in general, but are they, <laughs> I have seen stuff like, Anna, you're in New York. Are people doing that in New York? There's some of that in New York. Yes. I have to say that it's not as, I feel like if I did it, uh, I think I heard that it's on a Friday. If I did that and stepped outside, I wouldn't see a soul other person doing it because I have not heard um, anyone clapping ever, but I have read that it's that some people are doing it. Uh, it sounds like what you have going on there though is pretty amazing. And yeah, it's really like a national health service, everyone stepping out together as a nation. That's really, that, that's very uplifting, I can imagine. Yeah, yeah, very, very much so. Um, tell us a little bit about, because we had talked a little bit in the pre-show about some things that your company is doing um, to kind of help the NHS through this through this tough moment? Yeah, so um, so so on the back of this sort of community spirit and everything, there's a lot of companies in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in the US, who are offering um, discounts or free services or just doing what they can to help the key workers that are uh, doing so much for us. Um, so I know that Uber were giving some free rides or something like that, and the big supermarkets like Sainsbury's and stuff in the UK are are giving um, priority slots for delivery and stuff like that for, for a health service staff. Um, but the problem is whenever there's something free available, uh, there's always people that try and unfortunately try and uh, uh, game the system and uh, pretend that they are key workers or, or whatnot. People, so, people are the worst, right? Yeah, I know. So, so in are one the best sentence, they're the worst. Exactly, I feel like every yeah, time yeah. we have a data problem, it's actually like a people problem. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, yes, people are the best and worst. I'm sorry. I should be more optimistic. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Yes, I interrupted. No problem. No problem. So, um, yeah. So, so I, I wasn't even aware that this was going on. You know, everyone in my office is working remotely, and the people that I was working on the particular work I was doing. Um, weren't involved in this piece. And then I saw on LinkedIn that um, uh, my company, uh, Data Reply, had built this, uh, uh, I think it's called he Heroes Platform Service or something, um, where they could, uh, where, where companies who were helping uh, NHS staff and uh, other key workers, they could verify that they were in fact key workers or NHS staff. And anyone that's been involved in building anything, which then has to go out into the real world rather than just into a, in a, a testing environment or a sandbox environment knows that there's a lot of steps to it and things t tend to take quite a bit of time. And from the genesis of the idea to this platform being rolled out was 48 hours. Um, so I was very, very impressed and a little bit, <laughs> I felt a little, little bit of FOMO at not being able to work on that with them but i suppose my apart from my round of applause my my um uh, element of giving back to to the nhs etc uh was doing some of the other work i was doing so that people were free to do that let's let's call it that exactly exactly you know it's interesting a lot of people think oh data science is all about ai and predicting things and i think what that project shows is that a lot of it is really about getting the right data in the right place so that people who need it can use it 
you know, yeah, exactly. getting that data, getting that data like in a form that they can use, you know, it's a, it's a more of a data engineering problem. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So um, with that said, what were the projects that you were working on while they were setting up the Heroes platform service? Uh, i be curious to see. I, one thing I know that you've been doing is building some chatbots. Yeah. So I spent, I spent my entire day today um, building chatbots on AWS, which is actually a lot of fun. Can I interrupt um, for just one second? I just want to make sure. sure. Are, you, are you a chatbot? Are we speaking to a chatbot now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. I needed to check. <laughs> if I keep repeating the same thing over and over again, that's obviously a bug. Fair enough. We'll have a we'll have a little Blade Runner moment. Okay, good. All right, he's verified. Please continue. Yeah. So so I was building chatbots on AWS, uh, who DataReply are partners with. So we do a lot of work together, and it was loads of fun. You know, you can connect them to all sorts of different um, products and services, um, and get them to do absolutely anything you want, really. Um, as a consultancy, we know that we're brilliant and we could bring a lot of value to all companies, obviously. But believe it or not, sometimes those companies don't realize it themselves. So part of our role is, you know, getting our name out there and approaching people and saying, hey, we've, we've helped someone in a similar situation with this. Would you like to uh, see the sort of things that we've done and, you know, selling ourselves a little bit? Um, so when the chatbot I was working on today was just an internal thing where um, we basically have, we log all of our, uh, our conversations with people, like our sales conversations, things like that, uh, just through sending it to an email address that we have set up internally. And then all of this gets automatically scraped and all the data and we, we do analytics on, on it and see what's working and what's not. And suppose I want to speak to uh, someone from the data incubator, let's say. Let's say I thought they will be a good customer. Um, I could go on this chatbot, which we've got connected to our Slack uh, channel at work, and say, uh, ask the chatbot, which I've called Ashbot, because of course, it because. has to be named after someone. Yeah, and you need to live on. You know what I mean? Future generations <laughs> yeah. need to know exactly who Ashley Mation was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you, you log on to Slack, and you can say to this, this chatbot, um, has anyone in my team spoken to anyone from the data incubator before? And it will come back with uh, either a no or a yes and a list of people that have spoken uh, either by email or LinkedIn or phone call or what have you and when. So uh, sort of the idea behind this, apart from being able to track uh, our own sales movements and things like that, uh, was we've, I think we've all had situations where we've been approached by someone from a company and then a few weeks later, you'll be approached by someone else from that company and there wouldn't have been that internal communication uh, just to say, hey, I've spoken to that person already, like we're, we're on our way with this, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so yeah, we just built just an internal project while, um, while some of our client projects are, are slowing down a little bit um, and to do that. I mean, that's amazing because it basically takes your, your customer relation uh, management system and puts it in a, in a medium that's extremely accessible to everyone in the company. You know what I mean? And easy to work with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. And, and when, we know that we're not, you know, um, this isn't something completely new. Like there are CRM systems which do this sort of thing already. Um, but why, why purchase a CRM system when we've got data scientists internally? <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> absolutely. Cool. 
not everything needs to be new. You know what I mean? Everyone's like, oh, you got to use this NLP, you know, yeah. uh, model or whatever. But doing the doing the the, the basics good is is huge. Yeah. 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 Um, tell us what what are some other projects that you are working on that you are interested in. Um, so my main focus at the moment is actually uh, on geospatial intelligence. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I mentioned at the top of the program talking about uh, satellite image data. Um, so we are working with uh, a few different partners um, uh, on geospatial intelligence uh, currently. And um, I have been given the, uh, the job of sort of bringing that to market and leading a little team of people who um, are working on geospatial intelligence things. So one of the projects that we were doing um, is we're looking at the precision farming and um, uh, agricultural sector. And we're seeing how we can monitor sort of plant health and things like that over time um, from uh, the NASA, uh, sorry, not NASA, the European Space Agency's Copernicus Sentinel-2 satellite imagery. Um, so uh, I get to do a lot of computer vision um, and a lot of deep learning on it and try and do something which I'm actually really passionate about, which is trying to make more with less, um, trying to be more efficient with the food that we're producing for a growing population with uh, less input. Fantastic. So yeah, it's, uh, it's taking up a lot of my time at the moment, but I'm loving it. Can we take like 30 seconds for our data science aficionados? Would you like to tell us what kind of tools you're using to process these images in your uh, deep learning models and things like that? Sure. So I'm using the Sentinel Hub API. Um, so making calls to the API and um, then it's just custom functions that I built in Python. Um, as I mentioned, we're uh, partners with AWS. So we're hosting on AWS and uh, any models that I make, serializing the endpoints there and then creating little web apps, uh, which clients can uh, have a login and use to um, perform whatever function it is that they're performing. Um, so w one, of the, one of the things, for example, that we just finished with is uh, uh, the client can input uh, a single point coordinate and the uh, just into like a, a web app and uh, it will come out with firstly a uh, an image of that coordinate so this is for this is for agriculture so it gives you the particular field the paddock uh, that you're looking for and then we have got a number of different things which you can do with that so once we've scraped the data the the uh, the output data uh, there's a few different bands. You can you can look at the vegetation index and map the change of that over time to see how the crops are developing, uh, verify that certain crops have been growing and things like that. Um, you can monitor uh, water levels. Um, I did see, I saw a really, this isn't something that I did, but I saw a really cool thing uh, using this technology uh, recently where someone had, um, uh, they'd, mapped out and monitored all the monsoons in India for a whole year and they create this really cool visualization and stuff like that on, on top of it. Um, so yeah, uh, cool. but the, tech, the, the tech stack stack is Sentinel Hub API and then just Python. Very cool. You know, there is a similar project that I read about in, there's a book by Michael Lewis called The Fifth Risk. 
and mm -hmm. it talks about uh, basically a very similar project to the one you are describing. And yeah. the point of that um, of that chapter in the book was that none of this would have been possible without this huge uh, data store that the U.S. government had been collecting over years. And so I'm, yeah. you said you're working with the European Space Agency, like the data is coming from them, you said? Yeah, yeah. So um, they've got an open source data um, database. Um, basically, there's a couple of satellites that they've got uh, in orbit, and they're always collecting data. And it's sent back to the, the European, Space Agent, European Space Agency. And then they offer either, uh, there's a number of different tiers. So any data scientists out there listening, um, you can just sign up and go onto the free tier and have a little play around and see what, some of the things that you can do and have a look at what that data looks like. Um, then they've also got uh, different uh, levels where you can have uh, a research tier where you, it's like a small nominal amount and you can do as much research as you want uh, all the way up to uh, an enterprise level uh, where you're making uh, products from this data and rolling it out to numerous different clients. That's amazing. So, I mean, for people who are interested in doing these sorts of geospatial problems or just learning more about them, you can go there because there's this huge open data set that is available to you thanks to, you know, a government agency. Yeah, exactly. And wow. the, there's there's a lot of different libraries as well, which people have built on top of this um, on top of this data set to help you interact with the API a little bit easier. Um, so you can choose the library, uh, the language of your choice and just look for a library to, to be able to use to interact with that and off you go. It's really as simple nice. as that. Nice, nice. Well, okay, we've been talking about these projects which are clearly important, uh, you know, uh, health workers, uh, uh, helping people with chatbots, geospatial intelligence to help farmers, but we haven't talked about, I think, what is the most important, uh, let's say, uh, phenomenon in in uh, in the the the, the, com the human comedy, uh, which is of course football or soccer, like we call it in the U.S. And I know that you're a huge football fan, and yeah. I was curious. In fact, I do remember, and I don't want to like you know throw you under the bus here, but I do remember a few times we would have to stop uh, work at our course <laughs> so we could watch like key games. I can't remember who won, but uh, <laughs> but I know that was important. I know football is a big part of your life. Yeah, so I just want to make it absolutely clear at this point to you know everyone listening and any potential clients out there, um, that's not my mo in general. It's no, just no. that it's just that it, it, it happened to uh, two very big games happened to be on at about three o'clock in the afternoon uh, uh, U.S. time, I think Eastern time. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, that was about you know nine o'clock in the evening back in the UK. So ordinarily that would not be the case. But you're no, no, right. Absolutely, we were always very judicious in getting our work done. But every once in a while we would have to swap work hours with home hours just so that exactly, we could yeah, see yeah. those games. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, Anna, are you a big uh, football fan? I would watch things like um, the World Cup, like the finals, and I would watch the finals of a what's that thing called Champions League. Yeah, yeah, the Champions League. Well, yeah. So I'll yeah. watch like two games a year. So I feel like I yeah. know what offside is. I think I uh, stuff like that, but I'm not a Okay. An expert. Yeah, I'm kind of in that I'm kind of in that boat too as well. Yeah. Well, Ashley, you're a real aficionado. Well, speaking of offside actually, um 
So for those people that don't know, there's a certain rule in uh, European football called offside where you're not allowed to be beyond a certain player, basically. And so um, in the old days, you'd just have, uh, you'd have two sort of referees assistants running up and down each, each touchline. And if they thought someone looked like they were offside, they'd put their flag up and that was it. It was done. Uh, it was an imperfect system, uh, to say the least. Um, but the idea was, if they get it right about 80% of the time, then the 20% of the time that they get it wrong, it's probably going to even out across all the different teams. So let's just stick with that. Um, an acceptable <laughs> error rate. Yeah, it was, it was an acceptable error rate for the fans. Unless it was happening to them, then it was totally unacceptable. Uh, but then as soon as it happened to the other team, it became extremely acceptable again. Um, and because the Football Association is quite a, an old-fashioned uh, establishment, um, they've taken a long time to uh, follow other sports. Uh, like rugby has a, a something similar where they go to, to the slow-mo cams and have a look and see if there was a foul of some sort. Uh, and in tennis and cricket, they do similar. Uh, but football took a long time to sort of get with the program. And now they've got this thing called VAR, Video Assistant, uh, Assisted Referee. And every single game there, or, or every weekend, uh, back in the old days when football was still allowed to be on before the lockdown, um, there would be uproar about the VAR decisions. Uh, one week it was too strict, and then they'd relax it a bit, and then it'd be uh, not strict enough. Um, and they just couldn't get the use of technology right. And I've been waiting for the phone call from the Football Association for quite a while now um, for them to ask me and my colleagues a data reply. Could you come and fix this VAR situation for us, please? Because it, it'd be such a simple fix as far as I'm concerned. The technology exists to track an object in real time uh, to a decent degree of accuracy. Um, you don't need to pause the game for 10 minutes like they do and have the referee uh, uh, come and look at a screen in the center of the pitch. It could just be fed into the, the referee's assistants that are running up and down the touchline in real time using fairly basic uh, computer vision there we go. Uh, techniques. Hopefully and, they heard you now. So yeah, man, it's on you, record. You, you heard it first it's in DS30. <laughs> exactly. Well, the Football Association, you, uh, you can collect my uh, information from the guys here after <laughs> the podcast and get in touch with me and I'll be happy to help. Yeah, if Seth Blatter wants to call us, now. we'll be here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have any sort of like data pet peeves, Anna, where you're like, oh, if only they would implement this? No, I'm not going to think of one that, that is better than tracking offsides, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. I definitely feel like when I was working in university administration, there was so much where if only... Um, if only we were a little bit quicker and a little more agile and people were a little bit more willing to share their data, we could really improve student learning and improve the transparency of the way that classes work. But yeah. uh, that's, that's a heavy lift, for, heavy lift for universities. Yeah. Yeah. I, I suppose my other one is, is the overuse of the term AI, uh, particularly on TV ads. It's like someone's using a remote control on their TV, AI powered. I was like, is that AI? <laughs> I don't yeah. think it is. 
<laughs> maybe like maybe I'm, they're I'm, using a different, maybe it's an abbreviation for something else, you know, like automatic, uh, I don't know, integration. <laughs> artificial <laughs> ignorance. Yeah, artificial ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> I think, uh, you know what I like? I like artificial intelligence, authentic ignorance. That is, those, those should be the two abbreviations. There we go. <laughs> Well, good. Well, listen, you've been super generous with your time uh, chatting with us. Maybe just a few final questions. Are there sort of any, is there any advice you would give to somebody who's starting off in data science or is thinking about moving to data science? Maybe they're out there in Las Vegas. It's like late at night and they just lost a big hand to some famous <laughs> player and they're like, maybe I need to do something else. I don't know. Uh, what, what would you say to them? Um. The, my number one piece of advice for anyone wanting to get into anything um, is find someone that already does it and just ask them for some of their time because people are incredibly generous with their time. They're, they're always willing to give something back because in their history, they've probably had someone who's helped them along the way. So just you know, reach out on LinkedIn or, or make a phone call or send an email or don't go around to their house at, you know, at, at this or don't go around to their workplace, I should say, in this climate. Um, but, you know, just reach out to someone and say, hey, I'd love to know more about what it is that you're doing. Can I come and talk to you? And I've had people do that with me, and I'm more than happy to, you know, give them half an hour, an hour, go have a coffee, talk about some projects, and be very honest with them about what it is being a data scientist and, and in my case, being a consultant. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic um, advice. I would... Um agree with that absolutely and i found that useful in my um, sort of path as well talk to people who've mm -hmm. been through it and they'll kind of give you good advice on how to get to where you want to get to ashley yeah. thank you so much for being here for talking to thank us thank you thank you it's been this a pleasure was wonderful <laughs>